There's no real reason that there needs to be a shortage of meat. Um, you know, as a country, we export more than what we consume, far more than what we consume. Um, but when people hear that abattoirs are going to be restricting their capacity, when people heard that um, supermarket distribution centres were going to be restricted in their capacity, I couldn't blame anyone for panic buying because not even I could guarantee that there wasn't going to be shortages. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The world of meat production has had a spotlight placed on it in the last decade. The notion of sustainability, the rise of plant-based meats, have made unique times and challenges for producers. If farming in Australia didn't have enough challenges due to the drought, flooding and bushfires, the pandemic raised issues never before seen for those working the land. Pipes to market, panic buying, abattoir outbreaks, possible meat shortages. James Madden is the Managing Director of Flinders & Co. James, how are you going? Good, thanks, Ant. And uh, really interesting intro. I think there's a a lot that we need to cover off on all of those subjects you, you raised. Well, maybe we'll have to turn it into a series. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sure what, you can. What, what are the challenges that uh, you're facing just at the moment as a, as a producer? So uh, if I talk specifically about COVID, I mean, we um, our business has a few different revenue streams. We are predominantly, at least prior to COVID, we were predominantly a supplier to restaurants throughout Victoria. But we'd also started doing some retail uh, packaging of, of different meat products and we'd also launched our own company-owned branded lamb program called Roaring Forties. And that, uh, that brand we started to sell both to other distributors interstate and export. So we, we had already sort of started diversifying our business a little bit before COVID hit, but when it hit, it you know, really put a rocket under our ass to, um, and made us really realise the danger of just being in in one single industry segment. And I guess we're a bit more fortunate in the in that sense compared to our our restaurant customers in that we were able to um, diversify and we have been able to pivot a bit more towards our retail um, program and also our our export lamb program. But, you know, even then, mate, we'd be, I mean, we'd be down 60, 70% off, off what normal business was. Yeah, so it's, it's still significant. It's, um, it's workable with the JobKeeper and the government subsidies. But I was just doing some numbers um, the other day and, and from what I can see, I reckon by the time JobKeeper finishes in March of next year at this stage, I reckon our business will have got about half a million dollars in government assistance. And, you know, if, if we make money over that period, uh, sorry, if we break even over that period, I'll be really happy. So it just goes to show the scope of what the losses could have been and the decisions, you know, the costs that we would have had to cut if that government assistance wasn't available. Um, but also shows you the scale. You know, we're only a small business in the grand scheme of things, and and we've got, you know, we will have got almost half a million dollars worth of assistance. You know, multiply that out over tens of thousands of businesses. You can see where the billions of dollars 
uh, end up going. So, um, yeah, that's that's the, the short answer in terms of how COVID has impacted us. Um, it's been pretty dramatic, but I still think, you know, we, I feel very much for those in hospitality because um, it's not as easy to, to repurpose a restaurant to do export or, you know, interstate or things like that, which we are, are able to do. Um, so we're a bit more fortunate in that regard. Pivot is a word that leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth in the food industry. And although you said it was a bit easier for your business to pivot into a more of a retail model, uh, how hard was that to actually shift and um, gain some traction in retail given that the focus was on sort of medium to high-end restaurants so much for your product? Well, a lot of our... Uh, competitors, so other meat companies, and then not even um, even just other distributors in other fields such as seafood or fresh produce. When the when the virus hit, you know everyone was um, pretty shocked, and and we all sort of had whiplash for the first couple of months. But a lot of the more enterprising distributors, um, you know, engaged in some blue sky thinking and saw the online space as. Uh, an uncharted field that they might be able to expand into to try and replace some of their revenues. And we looked at it as well. Um, I I think online has a certain allure that you are able to market your product, whether it's a restaurant or a distributor or whoever you are, you're able to market your product direct to an end consumer and seemingly cut out some parts of the supply chain and cut out some middlemen. But, you know, the history of online is also littered with the failed carcasses of companies that had big dreams and you've got to be really careful to make sure that your model is sustainable and the hardest part of that model is um, A, any any revenue or any extra margin that you get uh, servicing directly to a consumer, you need to spend extra in order to get that consumer and B, you need to spend a lot more to deliver your product to that consumer. So where we might deliver direct to a restaurant, you know, a six or $700 order with consumers, we're looking at maybe a $150 order if we're lucky. So we looked at online and, and I sort of decided that um, we wouldn't pursue online. Um, I, I just thought it was you know, all of our competitors were going in there and I thought it was going to get a bit crowded and it was going to be really hard. Uh, so we decided to focus more, like I said, on our retail and our export business. And the beauty with the, our retail business was we'd already done all the hard work. Like we'd already bought the machinery. We'd already learned the very hard lessons over probably three years of trying to build it. And we'd already got the product and the packaging and the SKUs and the shelf life and all these things that go into designing a retail product. But, um, it's still been a slog, you know, you're still competing in a marketplace where there's lots of other suppliers and you've really got to bring something to the table that is, has got a unique point of difference. Otherwise, you, you know, there's no real reason for a, for a retailer to consider your product over someone else's. So we, as a company in, in 2018, we changed our identity and became um, Flinders & Co and really wanted to hang our hat on trying to be a, a purpose-led company with a, a clear vision that goes beyond just making profit. And so one of the first projects that we embarked on was uh, becoming 
100% carbon neutral. And this sort of feeds into some of your other points about you know, sustainability and plant-based and all the rest of it. But in 2018, we became what I keep claiming is the first meat company in the world to go fully carbon neutral. And no one's called me out on it yet, so I keep saying it until someone else says they were first. Well, can you go into what it takes to be carbon neutral in regards to meat production? That that carbon neutrality is really our party piece, I guess, and the reason why we have got traction into retailers is we've got something that no other products or very few other products have got. We've got a carbon neutral claim. We back that up with our restaurant level quality and, and sort of reputation for supplying some of the state's best restaurants. And that's been um, very useful in helping us get into those retailers and connect with our demographic that we're targeting. So, um, that, that's a little bit of insight into the retail space. But in terms of carbon neutrality, um, it's a really interesting topic because everyone has this idea that, uh, or a lot of people have this idea that meat is bad for the environment, um, meat is contributing to climate change, and that if we eat less meat, we uh, are doing a, an environmental good. And unfortunately, the, the, that you know, those notions have been reinforced by a number of documentaries and some of them have, you know, been um, vegan documentaries. You've got Game Changers, you've got What the Health, you've got Cowspiracy, you've got lots of these things that are now in mainstream, which is reinforcing these beliefs in society about meat being a negative. And uh, fortunately for us in the industry, the reality is not so binary. Um, and, you know, real life is usually not so black and white. The reality is that um, uh, in 2018, the same year we embarked on our project, uh, Meat and Livestock Australia, which is the industry body, set a goal that by 2030, the entire red meat industry in Australia would be carbon neutral. And not just carbon neutral by buying credits, which is effectively what we do as a company, but carbon neutral by changing our on-farm management pr practices to sequester more carbon into our soils. And um, that's the, the power of agriculture and the power of grazing animals is if you manage a farm in a particular way and you measure the change in the amount of carbon in your soils over time, um, you have the potential to absorb massive amounts of atmospheric carbon into your soil. So um, the, that was the impetus, I guess, that encouraged me to look in this carbon neutral space because I could see the rest of the industry was quite keen to do it. And I thought, you know, there's an opportunity here. It aligns with our new company vision. Let's try and be the first and let's really try and hang our hat on this claim and show everyone that, you know, that there's a talking point um, to the contrary of all this negative meat uh, narrative. So we, we engaged a carbon consulting company. They basically looked at all of our, uh, what we sell over the course of a year in terms of all of our different protein types. And there's a, a massive body of academic literature that exists where they calculate the different carbon footprints of different animal types in different farming systems. They selected out the, they're called life cycle assessments. They assess the carbon footprint of something over its entire life cycle. So the consultant selected the LCAs that best matched the 
um, types of meat that we sold and the areas and farming practices involved in, in raising those animals. And they basically came back to us with a, a number of what our carbon footprint as a company was. And there's two ways you can become carbon neutral. You can stop emitting all your carbon or you can effectively uh, incentivize someone else to take the carbon that you release into the atmosphere and put it back into the ground or into some other, you know, remove it from circulation. So that's what we do. We, um, every quarter, we calculate our carbon footprint. We uh, purchase credits on the carbon market and those credits uh, have got a dollar value. They cost money. They are the incentive and the reason that a heap of um, carbon programs are able to be viable and um, they ultimately result in a net, net, you know, a net neutral impact on the atmosphere. So whatever we release, we make sure that we take it back down. That's, that's step one for us. Um, step two is we want to, and it was going to be, <laughs> it was going to be my project in about April of this year, but I got a bit distracted. Step two is we will offer premiums to our to our suppliers. If they're able to deliver us a product which is carbon neutral, we'll pay them extra because that then means we're not having to pay for credits to cover that product. And that's how we encourage the premiums to flow down the supply chain towards the farmer to try and encourage farmers to not only change some of the things they're doing on farms, but also just to measure what they're doing because a lot of farmers are are already sequestering a lot of carbon that's just not being measured. So, yeah, that's in a nutshell, mate. Carbon accounting is a, can be quite a confusing uh, and in-depth conversation, but that's the basics around how we uh, make our product carbon neutral. Well, let's have a look at um, on the farm. You grew up on the land and you represent um, cattle, uh, lamb and chicken producers. Um, what does it take to grow these animals to bring them to market? Well, the biggest um, the biggest carbon footprints that we have in our business are from beef and lamb. And the reason that they're the biggest is because they inherently produce the most methane. Lambs, and, uh, sheep and cattle are what we call ruminants, which means they have a rumen stomach which contains four separate chambers. And with a stomach like that, they're able to digest things that uh, single-chambered animals aren't able to. So, for example, chickens, pigs, humans, we all have single-chambered stomachs. We're not able to digest the cellulose that's found in grass and other plants and convert it into energy. You need a, a four-chambered stomach to be able to do that. So, um, one of the byproducts of the four-chambered stomach is there are, um, I'm not sure if they're enzymes or bacteria or what they are, but there's something in one of those stomachs which produces methane as they're digesting that plant-based matter. And methane is recognized as um, one of the more potent greenhouse gases. It does, when it goes into the atmosphere, it, it stays there for 12 years and then it gets broken down into carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then that carbon dioxide is absorbed back into the soil, back into the plants that the animals eat, and you can see it's a, a carbon cycle. So there's a sort of steady amount of carbon that's going around 
up into the atmosphere as methane being broken down back into the grass, eaten by the animal, digested, and so on. Um, which is a bit different, and this is one of the issues with the uh, climate change debate, is that um, that cycle is very different to the cycle of a fossil fuel. You know, a fossil fuel has a cycle that might be millions or tens of millions of years. Uh, th there's fossil fuels that theoretically might never have returned to the atmosphere, uh, whereas where we dig them up, that's a sort of single use um, of carbon, whereas cattle and sheep, it's a, a circular system. So um, that's a little bit about how their stomachs work, but the other thing in terms of uh, ruminant animals is uh, in Australia, we have roughly 50% of our land mass is um, arable land, so something that can be used for agriculture. And of that land, anywhere between 80 to 90% of it isn't suitable for growing crops. So, you know, quite often we, we get hit with the argument that, you know, cattle or sheep are land hogs and how much less land a, a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger uses. But what these sort of headlining claims miss is that most of the land that is used for cattle and sheep production just isn't suitable for crops. Uh, it's either too hot, it's too cold, uh, the soil's not right, there's not enough water, it's too um, wet, it's too dry, it might be too hilly or too rocky. You know, there's all of these different factors that um, come into play when you're trying to work out what you can use a particular piece of land for. But what, um, what cattle and, and sheep are really good at is taking that land that isn't suitable for growing crops and realistically isn't suitable for much else and upcycling all of that non-human edible plant matter into protein and fat and highly nutritious protein and fat at that. So... Um, I, I think I've just gone off on a complete rant on your question, Ant, but that's a little bit about, I guess, how we produce meat in Australia. I'm not as much an expert when it comes to chicken and pigs. Chicken and pigs have a very different production cycle and um, they've been more industrialised in the way that we raise them. Um, but certainly beef and cattle, uh, cattle and sheep I'm very passionate about because I really see them as a, a really sustainable farming um tool for the future one of the things that has changed quite a bit in our food industry in the last couple of years is plant-based meats and their popularity and you briefly touched on on those and the amount of um, space required to produce those compared to producing um, cattle and lamb uh, how has that industry affected uh, what you do as a as a, a meat producer um I think it's probably as an industry made us um, really have a good hard look at where we're going as an industry and how we try and maintain our, our social license and the fact that, you know, we probably need to do a better job of telling our story because that's certainly seems to be one thing that the plant-based fraternity has been very good at of late is, is crafting a compelling narrative for people. Um, Despite, you know, despite what the news they might say or the headlines might say, there really isn't a lot of change in um, the volumes of meat that are being produced or consumed. And, and when you look at it on a global scale, uh, meat consumption continues to rise. 
as we, you know, as as the global middle class expands, one of the things that they demand when they have greater affluence is protein because they can now afford it. And it's pretty clear that um, we're not going to be able to meet all of those protein needs just through the production of meat. So we, we, we should and we are going to have to explore other methods of protein production besides just you know, cattle and sheep. And that can include things like insects. Um, that can include things like you know, algae. Lots of these interesting projects are going on. And that can certainly uh, include things like cell-based meat and uh, plant-based meat because you know, ultimately when we look in Australia – we produce a huge amount of wheat and um, sorghum and barley and other crops. We could potentially produce a lot of soy, and um, we currently ship, you know, the majority of it overseas as a commodity. So I have a really positive view of the plant-based world. I think it's a really exciting opportunity for Australia as a country to further value add the commodities that we produce here and and sell them around the world as a as a, a value-added product. Um, but certainly, you know, the, I think that um, a lot of the ideologues, because there are ideologues in that plant-based world, there are vegans who are quite evangelical. Um, they, they want nothing more than to see the end of the, the meat industry and they'll tend to push narratives that support that view that, you know, perhaps the meat industry is will be going through its Kodak moment soon. You know, perhaps we'll be totally irrelevant and, and the entire industry will go broke. It's just really hard to see how that's happening or, or when or how that would happen because that, that global um, demand for protein is huge and not even plant-based foods are able to sustain it on their own. One of the aspects that we've seen of the pandemic is panic buying, and not only of toilet paper but of meat as well. What's what has it been like from your perspective, and and what sort of pressures does that put on meat supply? So one of the things I think we've seen with panic buying, and this is not just the meat industry. You saw this with toilet paper, with flour, with rice, with eggs, with lots of different things at different times. Um, modern supply chains are very efficient, but they're also very lean, which means there's not a lot of slack capacity in modern supply chains. And they're built around consistency. So when there's a consistent supply and a consistent demand, we're able to get our excess capacity down so that we can provide a cheaper product and make that supply chain more efficient. They're not used to and they're not designed to um, deal with fluctuations of plus 10, plus 20, plus 30, plus 100% in demand within a few short days. There's just not enough elastic slack in those supply chains to deal with it. And ne neither should there be because we, we really don't need um, for that to happen. But with the first COVID shutdown, you know, I think um, I'm sure there'll be books written on the psychology of panic buying after the virus. But um, there was, you know, there was significant um, panic buying then. Most retailers and butchers and processors were not prepared for it. They didn't see it coming. And so the shortages were quite pronounced. But, you know, we got through that period. Um, 
interestingly, you know, pretty much every supermarket you go to, the meat aisle was bare, but the plant-based aisle was still fully stocked. So make of that what you will. Um, but, um, you know, the, the second lockdown that we had was quite different and, and worrying from a different perspective in that it was a lockdown that was, uh, sorry, it was a episode of panic buying and I'm referring more to the panic buying that happened at the start of August when we had the second stage four lockdown and we had the uh, face masks and we had this announcement around the restriction of meat plants. That panic buying was one that was caused by the government and um, it there's no there's no real reason that there needs to be a shortage of meat. Um, you know, as a country, we export more than what we consume, far more than what we consume. Um, but when people hear that abattoirs are going to be restricted in their capacity, when people heard that um, supermarket distribution centres were going to be restricted in their capacity, I couldn't blame anyone for panic buying because not even I could guarantee that there wasn't going to be shortages. And... Um, you know, I thought the government had done a relatively good job with most of the COVID-related things over the, the six months to sort of the 1st of August. But when they announced the, the lockdowns or the reductions in processing for meat and supermarket distribution centres, I was, I was pretty annoyed because there was a, a lack of consultation with industry. There was a lack of foresight around what the implications of that might mean and, and certainly psychologically what people how people might react to it and it took you know four four days of of pretty serious high level um lobbying not just from the meat industry but also from the ceos of all the supermarkets and the grocery associations with both the federal and state governments to um get them to change the rules slightly so that there wasn't a, a you know, mass shortages of product. Um, so there was there was still panic buying um, while they sort of thrashed those things out and eventually, you know, about a week later, the government came back and said, okay, we're going to modify the rules to um, try and ensure there's no shortages. But by then the damage had been done, you know, and, and the panic buying had returned. So we saw it for a, a week and a half, maybe two weeks. And then like the first lockdown, it, um, or the first round of panic buying, it subsided. And um, now we're starting to return to some level of normality. Just a few moments ago, you mentioned about uh, restrictions on abattoirs. What's the potential for an outbreak there and what sort of impact would it have? Well, yeah, they are a high-risk area because typically you'll have workers working pretty close confinement Um abattoirs and, and boning rooms, uh, you know, we've come a long way in terms of automation, but this it's still a, a manual task because every animal is different and every cut is different. It's a very sophisticated sort of deconstruction process that we go through when we, we put animals through abattoirs and, and totally debone them. So um, it, it still, you know, it still provides a lot of jobs as, as an industry because it is labour intensive. And what you have is, you know, you've got the combination of people working in relatively cl close proximity, but then you've also got uh, rooms which are insulated. 
So you've got airflow that is circulated around the room many times and it's circulated by big blower fans that we have which help keep the temperatures down. So you've sort of got this double whammy of people working close to each other and air circulation um, going around the room. So we've seen in Australia, we've seen um, abattoirs, uh, the sites of outbreaks, and certainly in the US, they had quite a few issues with abattoirs having to shut down and constricting the supply of meat because they had outbreaks. And, you know, a lot of these workers um, will either live with relatively large families or have pretty close-knit communities and uh, quite often they will have some members of the community or family that will work in one abattoir and other members that will work in another and other members that might work in a third one. So you have this sort of cross-contamination risk between, um, between all the different sites. So all those factors come together and you do get a greater risk and that's you know one of the reasons why the government did take a, a focus on the meat industry um, because just of its very nature and design. And we, you know, we certainly had WorkSafe come out to our facility. We had to develop a, a more strict COVID safe plan than what um, you would normally need for any other industry and, you know, put in place a range of measures to try and ensure that uh, we reduce the risk as much as we can. But, you know, ultimately we're a, an essential service. Um, we can't we don't want to mess with the food supply chain too much because it um, you know it's such an important one and I think that the changes that they've put in place in terms of slightly reducing the number of workers in abattoirs and slightly reducing the output and also the changes they've made to personal protective equipment it'll reduce the risk it won't go down to zero um, but it's certainly less than it was say six months ago. Flinders & Co is involved with brands such as Cape Grim Beef and Robins Island Wagyu, um, but one that you mentioned a bit earlier was the Roaring Forties lamb. What's makes, what makes that lamb so special? Well, it's the same reason that um, the Cape Grim Beef is special, Bass Strait Beef, you know, all of our brands are special in their own right, but there's a, a common thread amongst all of them, which is they're produced in either the southern part of Victoria or Tasmania. And we, you know, for probably 95% of our suppliers, we source locally from um, Victoria and Tassie. We only source a small amount of grain-fed wagyu from Queensland because that's, um, you know, a really natural area to, to grain feed cattle. So um, we source some Wagyu from Queensland, but 95% of what we sell is from Southern Victoria and Tassie. And, and what I think a lot of people and, you know, chefs as well sometimes take for granted is um, we're, we're, we live in an amazing environment here. You know, we're in a, a rare part of the world where we can grow grass 365 days of the year. And it's a luxury that's not enjoyed by many other uh, areas. And the fact that we produce more food than we consume is another luxury. You know, what a nice thing as a country to be able to have rather than, you know, imagine if, if we were in Indonesia, we got 220 million people living on islands. It's, uh, and you just can't produce enough food for yourself. It's nice to not have to rely on anyone else to provide food. But um, to bring it back to, to Roaring Forties, um, 
the the idea behind Roaring Forties lamb was born out of our original product, which was the Flinders Island saltgrass lamb. And we ended up stopping that program in 2018 because we were just having trouble with year-round seasonality. When you, you know, when you source a product that is seasonal in nature, um, it's very hard to deliver that product year-round because you're trying to work against the natural seasonality of it, and that you know is whether it's lamb or vegetables or whatever you're talking about. Um, so you've either got to try and arbitrarily force the system to to provide you with a product out of season which we were finding we were doing with our flinders island lamb uh, or you um, source product from other regions that are in season when your region isn't so we decided with the flinders island lamb program to expand it we uh, changed the the name to roaring 40s lamb and we included the southern part of victoria we kept the Bass Strait Islands, Flinders and King Island, and then we included Tasmania as well. And what you find with those sort of three, there's actually four distinct regions in there. You've got the Western Districts of Victoria, uh, the Eastern Districts, so Gippsland, you've got the Bass Strait Islands, and then you've got North and South Tasmania. And each of those regions has its own season. Each of those regions... Um, have spring lambs at different times of the year because spring comes at different times to those regions. So we're able to get a much more consistent supply of lamb throughout the year because we follow the seasons as they go through those regions. And Roaring Forties Lamb is, yeah, our way of telling that story of Southern Vic and Tasmania. And, you know, even though we're, we live here and we're here every day for other people in other parts of Australia and certainly people in other parts of the world, um, it's a pristine, beautiful environment that's quite special. And uh, I think we sometimes forget that. But people overseas, we've we've found are really enamoured with the, the brand and the sort of story of the Roaring Forties. The Roaring Forties, for people who don't know, is the, the name of the, the winds that blow through the 40th degree of latitude and they circle the globe. So... They pass through Bass Strait, they pass over Tasmania and Southern Victoria, and they've been measured as the cleanest air in the world. So, you know, we're, we're fortunate here in the southern part of Australia, we have very clean air. But those winds are also, um, they temper the climate, so we don't tend to get um, wild swings in temperatures in Tassie and, and Southern Vic. We don't get frosts too much um, we don't get extremely high temperatures as much as you do in other parts of australia and that's conducive to growing grass year round so we can have grass-fed lamb and beef um, that's of a really high quality a little earlier you mentioned how important restaurants have been for the various products that you have and you realized to switch to retail was important how are you feeling about restaurants at the moment, given what's just happened and, and restaurants moving forward as well? Well, I mean, one of the things that the COVID pandemic has shown is that there are, there are a lot of restaurants that are reliant on suppliers providing credit in order to remain afloat. And when restaurants go broke, um, we're always last in line. To receive anything you know the, the banks will always get first dibs then you've got secured creditors which are others you know usually financial institutions and then you've got unsecured creditors 
such as us, and obviously staff are further up the queue than suppliers. Um, so it's certainly um, illustrated, I think, quite um, clearly that a lot of restaurants had models which were not flexible and were not able to be financed without you know the the terms offered by suppliers and in the normal course of business that that is maybe workable you know we we didn't have particularly high bad debts each year which is the number of debts that never get paid Um, but in the new environment the risk has changed completely and so we've had to go through a process where we have to reprice the risk of offering credit to restaurants because over the next 12 to 24 months, it seems clear to me that there is going to be a contraction of the industry, there is going to be more uh, bankruptcies and the risk of us providing credit is much higher, especially when it's not secured. So. We've put in place a system where we're trying to incentivize customers to pay faster um, by offering discounts. And that can be, you know, if you're paying seven days, you'll get an 8% discount. If you're paying on credit card, you get an 11% discount. If you're paying direct debit, you get an 11.5% discount. So they're significant discounts. And it's a reflection of, you know, I guess what, what our prediction of the industry going forward is that unfortunately and heartbreakingly, I think that Melbourne will there's a good chance Melbourne might lose its place as of you know the foodie capital of Australia that I always used to brag to my Sydney friends about um, and that parts of the industry are going to be really really decimated um, you know there's going to be a loss of talent of people leaving the industry for for greener pastures you know it was already at times a difficult industry in terms of the conditions that you had to endure um, but it's also, you know, like a like a bushfire. There's widespread damage at the time, but there's green shoots, and quite often the the bush grows back greener than it was before. And I think that in some ways, and it's very cruel and brutal to to put it this way, but in some ways, this pandemic will weed out some of the weaker operators and allow more space for the more innovative and uh, forward-looking operators to flourish. You mentioned earlier that if you break even after this period of time, you'll be pleased. But when things get back on track, and um, what are you most looking forward to, and, and what are the positives that have come out of this experience that you'll take forward with you? Um, we. What am I most looking forward to? I'm most looking forward to giving my staff their pay cuts back. You know, we. We basically asked all of our staff, even with JobKeeper, we still needed a lot of our staff, including myself, to take pay cuts um, because there was just no chance of the business being viable, at least in the short term, with everyone on the same level of pay that they were on. So that was pretty, um, you know, a difficult conversation to have with everyone. And, you know, your staff are your family. They're a big part of your life and they're a, um, a big part of your success or failure. So you really want to look after them. And that, that's the one thing I'm really looking forward to is um, A, keeping them all in a job and B, getting them back to their level of pay that they were at before because I think they're all worth it. Positives are that I think 
uh, it's shown us all how resilient we can be. You know, we, we aren't dainty flowers. You know, we can get down in the trenches and um, dig and work hard and, you know, hustle um, when we need to and that the old ways of doing business need to be reconsidered. And this is true not just of, you know, obviously my business but of everyone's business. You know, we really need to look at the status quo which no longer exists and say, okay, what do we need to change? How can we do this better? How can we be more innovative? How can we rethink what we're doing as a company so that we're still going to remain relevant? Because, you know, after the first lockdown, I thought um, that everything was going to go back to normal. You know, our revenues started to increase steadily throughout the end of May and June and, and in the sort of latter half of June, you know, we were probably tra- tracking back 70% of pre-COVID revenue. Um, and that was what I had in my head. I thought, right, we just went through this little blip. We'll go back to 100% in due course. But this second lockdown is much more devastating than the first. And um, I think it would be foolish of anyone to think that things will just go back to the way they were. You know, I think this pandemic has changed so many parts of society, whether it's shaking hands with someone or going out for a meal. Um, we really need to, that's, that's the positive for me is, is the, what I've seen in people, what I've seen in our company is this propensity to, to be resilient, to be adaptive um, and to think outside the box going forward. I really love seeing when people think outside the box. Well, mate, it's been a, a real honour to have your insight on uh, Deep in the Weeds. Uh, keep in touch and, and thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much, mate. I love what you're doing. I think it's a great thing to be able to, you know, um, bring the community, the hospitality community together with your podcast and hear other experiences from people who are in the shit just like all of us. So uh, keep it up, mate. You're doing great work. Thanks, James. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.